Well, good morning, everyone. As uh, Shay said, happy Thanksgiving. We kind of joke around in the office that uh, after Summerfest is Christmas, just because the fall seems to fly by so fast. But uh, grateful for this time of uh, Thanksgiving celebration uh, with the family. Got my mom visiting from Arizona, so it was good just to have a nice, relaxing Thanksgiving around the table and just to offer the Lord thanks for his goodness and faithfulness to us. But uh, I realize that not everyone who celebrated Thanksgiving had a fantastic time for, for many. Um, maybe this was the first season where you celebrated Thanksgiving and uh, a member of your family wasn't there. And it wasn't because uh, they're out of town, but um, it's because they're no longer there. And when I think about especially the recent tragedies in our country over the last several months, my heart is just heavy. My my heart has been heavy, um, especially during this holiday season. We're just a few weeks still removed from that horrible massacre at the church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. And before that, it's probably about a month now, there was that senseless mass shooting at the concert in Las Vegas. And as I watched the news on television and looked at social media, I just began to grieve. I grieved for all the families who have lost loved ones. I heard the testimony of the pastor who returned back to his church and his own daughter was shot and killed. And my heart just ached for those families. I can see in those interviews and I can hear the frustration and the voices of people who were just trying to make sense of all the calamities. This is a reality for a lot of people this holiday season. And seeing those hurting people and hearing those testimonies reminded me of my own tragedy when I was 12 years old. You see, at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, my mom and I, we got a knock on, uh, our, on our gate. Uh, The date was November 17th, 1990, just a a few weeks before Thanksgiving, and it was the police. The police wanted to come in and and have a conversation with us, so they came in and they sat down on the couch, and I remember um, thinking the worst. They said, we have some news about your brother, about your son. And so I thought my brother had maybe gotten in trouble, started thinking, man, is he in jail? What happened to him? Maybe he's in the hospital. Um, Well, what's going on? Well, the police told me to go into my room while they talked to my mom. And I remember walking to my room, but didn't go all the way to my room. I was right around the corner listening in on the conversation. I remember it like it's yesterday. The police told my mom, I'm sorry, ma'am, but tonight your son died in a motorcycle accident. I was 12 years old, and I had my first experience with overwhelming and agonizing grief. It was unbearable. I don't remember crying so much as when I was 12 years old and the reality hit me that my brother was dead. When the reality set in, I quickly directed my attention to God and I had some questions for him. I felt like God had to give me some answers. Why did this happen, God? Why did this happen to me? Why did you take my brother? 
I started to play in my mind, even though I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible or about God's character. But if you're supposed to be a good God and you're supposed to love me, then what in the heck are you doing? And as a 12-year-old, I began asking those questions. I remember being so angry and sat on my brother's grave that I just ran away. I ran and I found the biggest tree I could find, and I just collapsed. I curled up in a ball, and I just started asking, why? Why, why, why? Why would you do this to me? The question was no longer theoretical. It was real for me as a 12-year-old. Why, God? Well, what do you say to someone? What do you say to yourself when tragedy strikes and begins to tear at your very own heart? What does God have to say to those who have experienced or are right now experiencing the agony of loss? My prayer for our time this morning is that we would know that God sees each and every one of us in our pain. That God knows where you are at. And he not only sees it, but he has great compassion toward you. That he's powerful enough to reverse your pain. And he promises to make everything right on that day when he will raise every believer who has died in him to a better and new life. And I'm confident that we can go to the scriptures and we can look at a lot of text that proclaim God's goodness in the midst of tragedy. But this morning, I want to take you to that passage that Shay read in Luke chapter 7. Why don't we turn there? This passage is actually only found in the Gospel of Luke, and it is one of the most remarkable miracles recorded in all of Scripture. What we find in this brief narrative is a clear picture of God's compassion and God's power as it's put on full display in the person and work of Jesus Christ as it brings comfort to the bereaved. I want to say that one more time. What we find in this brief narrative is a clear picture of God's compassion and power put on full display in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he brings comfort to the bereaved. As I said, uh, Shay read it. It's found in verses 11 through 17. And I want to read it just one more time to prepare us for our time in the Word this morning. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died been carried out, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Oh God, our Father, we are so grateful for an opportunity now to hear from you. May you please speak loudly and clearly through your servant. Um, I pray that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word, that we'd walk away from this text with a clear picture of your compassion and your power. We pray this in the powerful name of our Savior, 
Amen. Well, if you go back with me in the Gospel of Luke, he states very clearly why he wrote his Gospel. Luke's purpose in writing this account is to help Theophilus have certainty of the things that he had been taught about Jesus. He wants to help Theophilus answer one very, very important question. And that question is this. Who is this Jesus? He's helping Theophilus answer that very question. Who is this Jesus? Is he just another man? Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Or is he something even greater? And so every story in the Gospel of Luke, every encounter, every parable is directed at that aim. Luke is highlighting for us who Jesus really is as he ministers in the Gospel of Luke especially to the socially marginalized, as he ministers to the poor and to the oppressed and to women. And this is what we have in the story in front of us today in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. He records the story of a woman And it's a story of a woman who has lost everything. She's a widow. She's just lost her only son. And the trajectory of her life seems absolutely hopeless. But then she encounters Jesus. And he changes everything. That funeral procession that's supposed to end at the gravesite never makes it there. Jesus delivers back to a grieving mother her most prized possession, her very own son. It is a powerful, powerful story. Again, only recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. It's a story of God's absolute sovereignty. It's a story of God's amazing compassion. It's a story of his limitless power. And all those things are put on display in the person of Christ. So as Shay read, our text is actually sandwiched in between two stories, two encounters. The first is in verses 1 through 10. The second is uh, the question that John's disciples go and ask Jesus. If you look back with me at verse 19, John sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. And it's this, are you the one to come or shall we look for another? And look at Christ's response in verse 22. He answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And right between these two stories, the story of the centurion slave being healed, and this very, very important question that John the Baptist sends his disciples to ask, we have our story of Jesus raising a widow's son. And each of these stories are intended to point to the identity of Christ and help us understand who this Jesus really is. Let's look at verse 11 together. It says, Soon afterward, he went to a town called Dain, and his disciples and a great crowd was with him. Luke begins telling his story with this time reference. He says, Soon afterwards. And then you ask, Soon after what? Well, soon after he healed the centurion's servant. That miracle gave us a glimpse into Jesus' amazing authority. Because if you remember that story, Jesus didn't have to be present to heal that centurion servant. He healed him from a distance. And he healed him with just a word. And there's a recognition of Jesus' divine authority as the centurion exercises a great amount of faith. It's soon after those events. Maybe it's a day, maybe it's two days. 
But it's soon after those events that he journeys to a town called Nain. Now, Nain was a very small town. It's on the southern border of Galilee. It's about six miles southeast of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. It's about a 25-mile journey from Capernaum. And so when we think about how long it would take them to walk, it'd be about a whole day walk. Now, when we encounter geographical details in the Gospel of Luke, I think that's important because Luke doesn't normally mention those details. He rarely gives chronological and geographical facts. So when we encounter a detail like this, it's because Luke is trying to alert us to something important. And I think he wants to heighten our awareness to this location. He could have just said Jesus went to a city in Galilee, but he said Jesus went to a town called Nain. And by the time we get to verse 17, we're going to see why that's extremely important. But watch here as Luke sets the stage for this divine encounter. The text says that he's making his journey journey to Nain, and he's with his disciples, and he's with a great crowd. So Jesus is walking with his 12 men, the apostles that he appointed, and he's got another group of disciples, a large group, some that are fully committed, some we know that are not fully committed. They're on the fence. And then there's this large crowd. And they're all following Jesus, who's growing in popularity. Now these guys, they just want to see Jesus perform great miracles. Maybe they want to get a free lunch. But they're following Jesus, and Jesus is making his way to this town called Nain. Now it's likely that the crowd that accompanied Jesus is actually bigger than the entire town of Nain. And you have to picture this. Two large groups. The first group is this group that's full of excitement, full of enthusiasm. They've been witnessing Jesus do amazing things. And then here's another group, a large group. But this group is dramatically different. It's a sorrowful group, a group that's been mourning, a group that's experienced loss. And by God's sovereign and providential ordaining, these two groups are going to come face to face. And here in Luke chapter 7, verse 12, he's going to show us the pain of the event, especially as it relates to the woman whose world just got turned upside down. Look with me, verse 12. It says this, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. We're going to observe this widow's agony. It's a tragic situation. In fact, saying the word tragic is probably an understatement. It's really hard to imagine a more heartbreaking scene than the one that Luke describes right here. And Luke uses the word behold to grab our attention. This isn't your everyday kind of funeral. There's something extra painful about what's taking place. And to understand just the weightiness of this encounter, we have to transport ourselves back to the first century to get a feel for what a first century funeral was like because it's not like our westernized modern-day funerals. You see, today when someone dies, family members, they get that dreaded phone call. Maybe they get a home visit like we did. But in the first century, when someone died, you knew it immediately. Not because you're getting text message, not because you saw it on social media, but because there was a loud and agonizing screech that was made. And in this case, that death wail came from this man's mom. The cry of pain would have been so loud and so distinct that all the neighbors that heard it would know exactly what had happened. 
It's one of those sounds that you hear it and instantly your stomach goes into knots. You get chills that go throughout your body. You start to convulse. In our day, usually a week or more goes by before the body is fully prepared for burial. But in the first century, it's totally different. When someone died, preparations were made immediately. Funerals were normally held the day of, and they try to get it done before sunset. Because to keep a dead body at home overnight would mean that that place would be unclean. So there was this sense of urgency to get them out of the city. It's likely that this young man may have even died the morning that Jesus was on his way to Nain. Another big difference is the way that we conduct ourselves at a funeral. See, in our day, we usually get dressed up. We, we typically wear black or dark clothing, kind of symbolizing our mood, symbolizing our sorrow. People kind of quietly pay their respects, and the environment is usually very quiet and somber. The body is viewed in a casket, and then it's put in a hearse, and then it's led away in this procession to the burial site. But in the first century, they'd take that dead body, they'd anoint it, they'd place it on a bier, not B-E-E-R, but B-I-E-R. It was like a sturdy stretcher, and it was open so that the family could view the body. The body would be carried to the burial site with sorrowful music playing. There's the dirge that's going on. It's creating this emotion. The immediate family would lead the procession of relatives and friends. And in a town like Nain, I don't think it's a stretch to say that everyone was involved. It was such a small town. The whole town probably came out and joined in the sorrow. But also different was the way that they expressed themselves. I've been to lots of funerals. There's quite a bit of holding back of emotion at a funeral. But one of the things that you notice in the first century is that there is no holding back. You would see these outward expressions of the inner turmoil. Men would be ripping out their hair, tearing out the hair from their beard. Everyone would be beating their chest, ripping their clothes. Some people would collapse and just cover themselves in dust and ashes. But while the details of a burial in the first century might differ from ours, there's one great common denominator across all the centuries, across all the cultures, And that common denominator is heartache. It's the pain that we experience when we bury someone. Oh, it would have been bitter bitter weeping. While the details of a burial in the first century are difficult to comprehend, we know what it's like to have that heartache. I remember the very first time I attended a funeral. So I was 11. This is actually a year before my brother passed away. I was playing basketball for an AAU team, and so we traveled to Utah for this tournament. And after one of the games, on some of our downtime, we all jumped in the pool. We're having a good time in the pool. And uh, after that, we jumped out of the pool, and we recognized that one of our teammates was still in the water. And at first, we thought he was just kind of goofing around. Then it hit us real quickly that he wasn't goofing around. So we all dove in and pulled him out. Just like that. It was... Literally a matter of minutes. And here this young 12-year-old who was talented like crazy passed away. And I remember getting on that plane and going home about a week later 
going to my very first funeral. The funeral was in Chinese. He was a Chinese basketball player. I had no idea what was being said at that funeral. But there's one thing that spoke to me very loud and very clear. And that's death brings heartache. I watched his mom weep over the casket. It was uncontrollable. And I grieved. See, all funerals are sad. All funerals are sad. But Luke, when he tells this story, it's hard to imagine a funeral more sorrowful than the one that's experienced here. How do we know that? Look at the text. We have several clues. Verse 12 says that it was a funeral for the woman's son. I was reading a book by Joseph Bailey. It's called A View from a Hearse. He says, Of all deaths, that of a child is most unnatural and hardest to bear. He said it's a period that's placed before the end of a sentence, sometimes when the sentence has hardly begun. And later he says, When a child dies, part of a parent dies with that child. Talk to my mom. You talk to someone else who's lost a child, and they will say that very thing. But she just didn't lose a child. Look what it says. It wasn't just a son that she lost. It says it was her only son. A Jewish woman that was unable to have children, that was tragic. But even more tragic was to have a son, an only son, and to lose him. Time and time again in the Old Testament, we learn that to experience the loss of an only son was to experience the worst kind of pain. Jeremiah 6.26 says this, O daughters of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, mourn as for an only son, a lamentation that is most bitter. Zechariah 12.10 talks about this idea of mourning for an only son. They're going to weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. See, this wasn't just her son, but the text says it was her only son. The word used there is monogenes. It's the same word that's used of Jesus. This is her one and only beloved son. Now, I realize that there's no amount of consoling that can take away the grief over a lost child. But some parents do find comfort in the reality that they have other children. Or some parents do find comfort in the reality that they can have other children. I think back to Adam and Eve. Remember when Cain killed Abel? Adam and Eve essentially lost both boys at that point. But Eve was comforted. How was she comforted? She said this in Genesis 4.25, God has appointed to me another offspring instead of Abel. The birth of a child was her consolation. You think about Job who lost all of his children. And yet at the end of the book of Job, he's restored and he's comforted by having more children. But that wouldn't be the case for this woman here. Look at what the text says. She was a widow. The son's death is only magnified by the fact that her father or his father had already passed away, leaving that young man as the sole provider and the sole caregiver for his mom. And now, with both father and son dead, this poor woman would not have any way to provide for herself. There was no life insurance. There is no welfare system. She is left to herself. And this is where you say, well, wait a second. 
When, when I read my Bible, I see that there's provisions that the Lord made for widows. Isn't that, supposed to, isn't that what's supposed to happen? Well, there's two problems with that. One is a lot of those instructions come in the New Testament when the, when the church is established, and we're not quite there yet. But the other is that the people who are supposed to be taking care of widows, the religious leaders who are supposed to meet the needs of the widows, they weren't being obedient to God's word. In fact, when Jesus steps on the scene, he gives woes. Woe to the Pharisees. Woe to the scribes. You're devouring widows' houses. Those who are supposed to be upholding justice, defending the rights of the widows, they weren't doing that. They were ignoring the widows. They were neglecting the widows. They were mistreating the widows. And when we look at the Scripture, we say, well, is that God's heart? Is that how God wants widows to be treated? Absolutely not. What is God's heart? What is God's heart toward widows? What is God's heart towards those who are being oppressed? What is God's heart towards those who are suffering like this woman right here? What is God's heart toward the sorrowful? Those are important questions. And everything changes at verse 13. As we begin to see what God's heart is like toward those who have experienced agonizing pain. And we see God's heart again in the person of Jesus. We're going to look at the Lord's compassion. Look at verse 13. It says this, When the Lord saw her, He felt compassion for her. And He said, Do not weep. Now it would be easy just to jump in to the compassion aspect. But we can't pass over one very important word in verse 13, and it's the word Lord. Curios. This is the very first time that Luke uses this word, Lord, as he refers to Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's the word Adonai. And it's not coincidental, but I think Luke strategically places this word here, Lord. He wants his readers to make an important connection. And remember, Luke's big question is, Who is this Jesus? Well, this Jesus is the exact same sovereign, all-powerful, authoritative God of the Old Testament. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who rules over all things, and it's the Lord's heart that we see on full display. There are several details in verse 13 that give us a glimpse into the heart of of our God. The first detail that shows our Lord's heart is that Jesus, it says, saw her. Look there. The focus is on the woman. Watch this. Look at the repetition of the pronoun. It says, she was a widow. The crowd was with her. Jesus saw her. He had compassion on her. He spoke to her. And finally, he gave the son back to her. Luke is using this repetition to draw us into what Jesus cares about the most. It's that woman. He cares about her. Everything else just seems to fade away. The disciples, the crowds, the bearers, the mourners, all that fades. And Jesus is zeroed in on the pain and agony of this woman. This word also denotes involvement. It's not just seeing something but it's seeing about something. He looked at that heartbroken widow. He saw her grief. 
He saw her in the depths of her sorrow. And he was determined to do something about it. See, it's one thing to observe someone else's pain. It's something entirely different to actually feel that person's pain and then do something about it. My wife and I are very, very different. I kind of grew up with this men don't cry attitude. I remember watching this movie on, on the Holocaust and, man, it gripped me and a tear started coming down my eye. And I remember looking at my wife and a tear wasn't coming down her eye. Her whole body was convulsing. She was just weeping uncontrollably. Recognize the difference. And I'm grateful that I can see a demonstration of exactly what Jesus felt here. He was moved within his spirit with compassion. And that compassion led to action. But look at what it says. He felt compassion for her. There is no stronger word in the Greek language for that kind of sympathy. Uh, The Greek word here is splachnizomai. Try saying that one. Splachnizomai. It doesn't just mean that you feel for someone. It means that you feel so much that you're moved to the deepest part of your being. It's a feeling that you get in your gut. It's a visceral feeling. It's the strongest degree of pity and compassion. And that's exactly what Jesus feels here. Do you remember when Jesus tells the story of uh, the Good Samaritan? Actually, why don't we look at that. The story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. I think it's even up here. Luke chapter 10, verse 33, he uses that same word to express what the Samaritan felt when he saw the man who had been beaten brutally, and he's left on the side of the road for dead. You remember the story. Everyone else is walking by him. All the religious leaders are walking by this guy, but here comes this Samaritan that sees the scene, that sees this man, that sees his predicament, and he has compassion on him. He feels toward him. And that compassion sprung him into action. His heart didn't just go out to the guy. He just didn't wish him the best. He actually did something. What did he do? It says that he started to bandage up his wounds. He put him on his own donkey. He took him to an inn. He cared for his needs throughout the night. He paid the innkeeper and said, Hey, look, whatever it takes to get this guy back to health, let's do that. I got to go, but when I come back, whatever you spend, I'll reimburse you. That's compassion. His compassion moved him to act. Luke uses that word one last time in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus tells the story of the lost son. You remember that story of the prodigal? It says this, And that son, he arose and he came back to the father, and while he was still a long way off, what does the scripture say? The father saw him, And he felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. The feeling of compassion moved the father to it moved the father to do what no elderly man would have done during that time. He picked up his robe, he made a beeline, and he sprinted for his son. And the text is very clear that even though the son had disgraced him, even though that son dishonored him, even though the son disowned his own father, the father looked at him from a distance, felt compassion, and like Hussein Bolt, sprinted at him. And it said that he fell on his neck, and he embraced him, and he kissed him. That's compassion. 
There's a third detail that reveals God's compassionate heart in verse 13. But it doesn't appear that way at first. Look at the text with me. Look at what Jesus says. It seems compassionless. Right? It seems kind of cold. Some would even say cruel. Look what he says to the woman. He said, do not weep. Do not weep. Now what I think heightens the drama of that moment is that he's actually commanding her not to weep. And when I first read it, I said, that's, that's got to be a mistake. Maybe that's not in the original manuscripts or something. But no, that's what it says. And it's a command. And I thought, shouldn't it say something like Jesus wept with her? I mean, it seems entirely out of character of Jesus, especially in this moment, to say, don't weep. I've learned probably the hard way, probably too many times, that maybe the best thing to say in a situation like this is just don't say anything at all. I've stuck my foot in my mouth time and time again. I've said things like, I know how you feel. People don't want to hear that. I know how you feel. Keep your head up. Jesus knew exactly what to say. And it wasn't some token encouragement. We know in the previous chapter he said that it's blessed for those who weep now. So we know that he's not forbidding sorrow. So you ask, what's he doing then by commanding this woman not to cry? Even Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that when grieving comes, and it will come, especially over our loved ones, that we are to grieve, but we're to grieve as those who don't have hope. So what is Jesus doing here? What's he saying? Because this seems derogatory and it seems heartless. But it would only seem that way if Jesus was unwilling or unable to change her weeping. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He is going to change this woman's weeping. He's going to remove her grief. He could command her to stop weeping because he can actually do something about it. And he's the only one that can do something about it. And this is where we see both the compassion of our Lord and the power of our Lord. And they come together in this sweet and beautiful harmony. Both his compassion, it's great that our Lord is compassionate. But big wow if he doesn't have the power to do something about that compassion. But here in the text, we see both his compassion and his power coming together. Our God is not just a God of compassion. He's a God of compassion and power. Look at what he does. This is unbelievable. Verse 14, And he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. Man, if that's not power, I don't know what is. Remember, Jesus isn't talking to a guy who's fallen asleep. He's not talking to a guy who's sick. This dude is dead. Everyone knows he's dead. And Jesus just told a dead guy, get up. You don't talk to dead people and expect a response. But Jesus does. When he talks to dead people, they respond. You see, Jesus, he hasn't lost his mind. He's not some lunatic. No, he's the compassionate God who has authority and power even over death. To really appreciate this, just imagine yourself there. Get yourself there. This man interrupted a funeral. He interrupted a funeral 
He told the mother who lost her son to stop weeping. He stops the pallbearers. He touches a stretcher. I mean, he's got no concern for etiquette. He doesn't care about ceremonial rituals. Everyone knew that you're not supposed to touch a dead body. Don't touch a grave because you're going to render yourself unclean for seven days. Jesus doesn't care. Who does this guy think he is? Young man, I say to you, arise. Look what happens. What does verse 15 say? The dead man sat up. The dead man sat up. No one was expecting that. He's not dead anymore. Can you comprehend that scene? For us, we've read the story. We've read it a couple times this morning. But if you're there, that guy was dead. He's not dead anymore. He just sat up. And Luke adds, he began to speak. What in the world did he say? What's up, y'all? Here I am. Probably didn't say that. You can ask him. You can ask him what he said. But Luke doesn't record it. He just says he started speaking. It's a clear sign that this guy was in his right right mind and he's now alive. And look what it says. Jesus gave him back to his mother. He not only gave the man back his life, but he gave that woman her life back. He restored that woman back into the community. She got her provider back. She got her protector back in her son. And it's interesting, as you note this, there's no mention of anyone's faith. She wasn't exercising faith. The dead guy, he certainly wasn't exercising faith. Whose initiative was this? It was Jesus. All Jesus. He's the one that saw her. He's the one that felt for her. He's the one that acted on her behalf by speaking. This is a jaw-dropping scene. Young man who used to be dead, now he's alive. Mother who was pouring out tears of sorrow, now they're tears of joy. And then there's this Jesus. Standing in the midst of these two large crowds, everyone astonished at what they've just seen. And all he did was say, arise. They have no explanation. Never have they witnessed that kind of power, that kind of authority. This is mind-blowing. Well, what's their response? How do people react to the display of this compassion and power? Look at verses 16 and 17. It says this, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Literally, the text says that fear took possession of them. Phobos. It grabbed a hold of them. See, they had read stories. They had heard stories. There was these 400 silent years. They'd never seen Miracles like this, but here it is, right in front of their face. They knew a man of God was in their presence. They knew someone special was in their midst. And so they're glorifying God. They're praising God. And the story could have ended there. We can close our Bibles. We can chalk this up as probably one of the top ten, maybe top five of Jesus' miracles. And say, man, what an awesome Savior. What a fantastic miracle. What a blessed, sweet reunion. But the story goes on. 
And this is where I think we receive the theological uppercut, I'll call it. It comes in the two statements that are made by the crowd. Did you notice those? Look at those two statements. A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. You see, there's more to those two exclamations than I think we realize. Both sound, they both look accurate. Those are right assessments of Jesus. The people recognized they were in the midst of someone totally unlike them. He had power. He was special. He was unique. But those proclamations ultimately fell short. Let me show you why I think that. This whole time, Luke has been telling this story with a deliberate intention of drawing our attention back to the Old Testament. Back to two of Israel's greatest prophets. So you can't read this narrative without hearing resounding echoes back into the Old Testament, the story of Elijah and the story of Elisha. Two of Israel's greatest prophets. When you open up 1 Kings 17 and you open up 2 Kings chapter 4, you encounter very, very familiar familiar stories. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah encountered a widow from Zarephath. He met the widow at the gate of the town, just like Jesus met a widow at the gate of the town of Nain. Both had sons who died. Both sons were brought back to life. And in both accounts, the son was given back to the mother. In fact, the very same clause he gave him back to his mother is identical in both accounts. In the case of Elisha, he went to a city called Shunem. And when, he, and when the mother lost her son, Elisha raised him from the dead, returned him to his mother. There's these striking similarities in all these stories. And I don't think it's coincidental. I want you to take a look at this. Can you see this? Here's the town of Nain that Jesus traveled to from Capernaum. Here's the hill of Moray. Here's the town of Shunem. See how close they are? The miracle happened in Nain. There's a long history that's been told and retold and retold about what took place in Shunem. And so when I see that they're glorying in the fact that God has sent them a new prophet, it's finally our turn. We're getting a glimpse of it. God has returned to visit His people. Just like Shunem had a prophet who raised someone from the dead, now we're experiencing this. And it's cause for celebration. We've got our own. He's raised up in our midst. But there's a problem with this. You see, the people concluded that God had sent them another prophet. Similar to Elijah. Similar to Elisha. But he wasn't just another prophet. He is the prophet. You remember back in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses prophesied, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen to. And here he is. He's right in their midst. The one that Moses prophesied about is standing right there. This isn't another Elijah. This isn't another Elisha. No, this is 
the prophet. To say anything less is to miss that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's certainly to miss that this was God in the flesh. You say, well, okay. What do they mean by God has visited his people? Aren't they recognizing that God was in their midst? That's an Old Testament expression that meant God had sent help to his people. In the Old Testament, God's presence was with the prophets. His power was put on display through miracles. But the major difference here is that God's actual presence was in their midst. God himself was doing the visiting. He wasn't just visiting through another prophet. The fullness of deity was right in front of their eyes. To fall short of Jesus' true identity is tragic. And this is why Luke is writing the gospel. He's not just another prophet. Muslims believe that he's another prophet. Jehovah Witnesses might say he's a prophet. There are lots of religions that will acknowledge Jesus as a prophet. But you and I know that's not all he is. He's not just another miracle worker like Elijah or Elisha. You remember that encounter at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is there with his disciples on a private retreat. And he asked them, who do the people say that I am? And they start going down the list. Some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Jeremiah or another prophet. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter's response. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. The greatest, the clearest vision of God that man has ever seen or man ever will see is in Jesus Christ. We've been learning in the Gospel of John, He is the one that has made God known. He is God in human flesh. Let me ask you this. Have you, like this widow, have you experienced agonizing pain? Have you experienced heartache? Are you experiencing that now? I know many people in here, you are currently, right now. You're asking questions. The same questions I asked, many of you are asking the same questions. Has your circumstances caused you to ask these questions of God like, where are you? I thought you were good. What happened? What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Why isn't it to someone else? Do you care, God? Are you even listening to me when I pray? Are you going to answer my prayers? You know, for years I ran away from God. Just being honest with you, deep down I think I hated God as a young man. He took my brother away. I knew God was sovereign. I probably didn't know what that word was, but I knew he was in control. And all the things that he was doing in my life, I wasn't happy with it. I wasn't approving of his plan. So I ignored him and I indulged in my sin. But when I was 20 years old, I came face to face with the compassion and power of God. My mom, who's sitting with us today, she came down with another bout of breast cancer. And she was on the verge of death. I watched my mom's hair fall out. I watched chemotherapy kick her butt with my dad not really around the way I wanted him to be. Just me and my mom. My brother's dead. And now my mom's going to die? I remember thinking, life just sucks. 
It's pain after pain after pain. And if there's a good God, He's not being good to me. But instead of just asking questions, this time I was compelled to start looking for answers. I started praying fervently, honestly. God, just reveal Yourself to me. I really want Your help this time. He answered those prayers by showing me Jesus. I saw Jesus for the first time in the Scriptures. For the first time, I saw Him for more than just a good teacher. He was more than just an awesome miracle worker. He was more than just a prophet. I saw Jesus for who He truly is, God in human flesh. All the compassion, all the power displayed in the life of Christ was the very compassion and power of God. And that's when He met me in my confusion and he met me in my heartache, and he met me in my pain, and he spoke life into my soul. I know that many of you are experiencing agony. I know that many of you will experience agony. It's just a fact of life. Do you know the Jesus of Luke chapter 7? Do you know him as the compassionate God who's not just compassionate, but he's powerful. There's no one like Jesus. The gods of the world are cruel. They're impotent. But when we encounter Jesus, we've got the God of compassion and power. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. God knows what you're going through. He knows your pain. He knows your suffering. He knows your sorrow. And he doesn't just know it but He fills with you. He's intimately involved with you, more than you can begin to comprehend. He not only has the deepest affection for you, but He's got the power to do something about it. This miracle in Luke 7, it's a visible parable of God's greatest compassionate act. Because as wonderful as this miracle was, here's the reality. That man was raised to a life that's still full of sin and death. He was going to suffer. He was going to experience pain. So was his mom. He would actually be in a funeral procession that led to the grave. He would die again. But God has always had a solution to this problem. You see, God saw our spiritual deadness. He felt compassion. And it's because of his compassion that he sent his son to this world to take on human flesh, to live a life of obedience, to go to a cross that he didn't deserve, and to raise from the dead, guaranteeing that one day He's going to make everything right. He's going to reverse every pain, every heartache, every loss. We've got two children never saw because they were lost in the womb. I'll be reunited with them. You've lost son. You've lost daughter. You've lost mom. You've lost dad. You've lost grandparent. If they are in Christ, you will be with them again. This is Jesus' promise to us. For those that have experienced Christ, we've experienced His compassion and power like no other. There's a day yet future when Jesus again will say, Arise. But it's not to a sin-plagued world. It's going to be to a world where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow. This is the Jesus of Luke chapter 7. What a wonderful Savior.